Welcome to the Scott Burplank Show. It's part of the Sellout Crowd Network. The Scott Burplank Show is sponsored by EMAC Group. EMAC is an environmental, microbial, and air quality solutions group. If you suspect you have mold or air quality issues, EMAC provides the solutions. Find out more at emac.com. Today I'm joined by Brandel Chambly, lead commentator for the Golf Channel. All right, welcome uh, to another edition of the Scott Verplank Show, <clears throat> and I am thrilled to have uh, one of the most recognizable faces and voices in golf. Uh, he's the lead analyst commentator for the Golf Channel and um, seemingly an expert on all things golf. Um, so, Brandel Chambly, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Um, be great to have a little chat with you. You know, we kind of grew up playing junior golf against each other. And what were you at? Uh, Irving MacArthur, I believe, for high school? I was school? at Irving, Irving MacArthur a couple of years ahead of you. Uh, you were at W.T. White, if I remember correctly. That, that right? is correct. But, yeah, in the general <laughs> Dallas area. Um, and, and, listen, there were a ton of great junior golfers around. Um, all the guys that kind of grew up in our, you know, age bracket, kind of Mark Brooks, Andrew McGee. Uh, yourself, uh, Brian Watts was a couple years behind me. Um, junior golf in, in North Texas was something back in the. It still is, but back in our day, it was pretty darn good. It was unbelievable. I remember I didn't start playing until I was thirteen, and I I remember everybody was shooting in the sixties that I was playing against. Um, the name a name that you probably remember, but didn't make it on tour, but was a fellow by the name of Billy Beverly. So Billy was about the first person I ever played golf with. Because I was riding horses at the time, I invited Billy out to ride horses. He said, well, you guys should come play golf with me. So I went out and played golf with him. He shot 69 or 68. I shot 169 or 168. And, uh, and you know, so I, I came home. I told my dad how much I enjoyed the game and how much I wanted to play golf. He's like, well, we we got to sell the horses in because you can't do both. So I uh, sold the horses. I started playing golf. And immediately I started playing with Billy and a bunch of other people in municipal golf courses around Dallas. But what I found out was, yeah, just as you said, every single 13, 14, year, 15 year old kid that I played with seemingly was shooting in the sixties. I was like, good gracious. Well, what I didn't know was, you know, I caught an era of there were what, I think I counted one time, like 10 junior kids from that area made it to the PGA tour. Cause there's others like Danny Briggs that maybe you didn't mention who made it to the PGA tour. There's, Loads of Andy Dillard was around there. Willie Wood yep. was around there. Uh, it was an impressive and really fun group of, of kids to grow up with. Oh, it was. Okay, Brandel, this is a typical pod. Give me one second. I got to let my dog out of the room. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right, we're back. All right, this makes it real. This is this is Absolutely. no BS. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you're right. Those days, those days were something. Hang on. Yeah, those days were something for junior golf in North Texas. And, and uh, yeah, I was kind of thinking about that today when I was kind of going over stuff I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I was like, yeah, we're playing golf at, like, Great Southwest. and, and, oh, and yeah, like, I love Great Southwest. Yeah, that, isn't that where, is that where you played a lot? I played a fair bit there. I think they were the only place that had bent grass greens around the right. Dallas Fort Worth area, other than Colonial, which I was right. playing Colonial. <laughs> well, we couldn't get on Colonial. <laughs> I wasn't on Colonial, although I did get that was a place where I played my first tour event because I won the Southwest Conference in '83, so I got invited to play Colonial. So my very first tour event, and I think the first time I ever played Colonial was 1983. Um, 
And then, you know, there were loads, and I, I don't know if you did this, but I, you know, I grew up playing municipal golf courses in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, so I grew up in these gambling scenarios. And I remember one time getting in this gambling match at Colonial. Mark Brooks was in the group where we played one with a one iron, two with a two iron, three with a three iron, all the way around to nine with a nine iron. And it was something like $100 a hole, one down, automatic presses. It's crazy stuff that like is. that. I remember, I remember some guy I played with, I've forgotten his name, it was like Gary Chandler or something. He was a great gambler around that area. He shot 38 on the front nine at Colonial playing like that. One club per hole? One club per hole. Wow. What, you know, and you know, you get down to you're playing nine at Colonial with a nine iron, and it, you know, I mean, it, the yep. guy, I think he shot three over. Uh, that's you know, pretty, those were the kind of games we impressive. got in. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Yeah, no, those, um, I kind of I grew up the same. Listen, I played at Brookhaven, and then like our high school stuff was all at the Dallas area, you know, municipals, and um, same deal. Um, that's how you learn how to play, though, and learn how to compete is you, in my opinion, you kind of get in some of yeah. those games where you're a little bit over your head and, and you really got to go. And uh, yeah. uh, it makes you it, it kind of stokes your fire and go, OK, can I do this or can I not do this? So exactly. um, I, I, I think that still probably goes on with some of the younger generation now. But but I don't know. I think that was more the of the, the era that we grew up in and kind of the, the Wild West. There wasn't as much money. I, in I golf. think you're so, right. I think so, you're right. I mean, I I, you know, right. you're 16, 17, 18 years old, and you win 100 bucks playing golf. Dude, you are loaded. You're loaded. <laughs> you're yeah. loaded. I'll give you one more real quick. I remember one time I had won the the Dallas Men's Championship. I was 17, but and I was playing at Cedar Crest, and this old man came up to me. He had to be in his 70s, and he asked me uh, if I wanted to play a game for $100 a hole. That was, so that was $900. At the time, I worked in the bag room at Los Colinas Country Club, so I had five or six hundred dollars. And I said, "Well, I'll come back next weekend and I'll play it." So I went home and I asked my dad if I could borrow three hundred bucks because you had to have nine hundred bucks to put it up front to play this game. And this man had said, "You pick any two clubs to play the front nine, and I'll play you with three clubs: a seven iron, a wedge, and a putter." That's what he said. He was like seventy. I, I went home. And my dad was like, "Okay, I'll give you three hundred bucks. I'll loan you three hundred bucks." But you're going to lose. I'm like, Dad, there's no way I'm going to lose. This guy's like 70 years old. I, I'll, I'll figure out a way to beat him. So all week I practiced punching, hitting low. You know, I tried to figure right. out what perfect club. So I got to where I'd play with a top flight or a magnum and I would, could blade it. And on those hard fairways, they'd go like 250 yards. And then you could punch it and hit it 160 and cut it and hit it 140. And So I, I played him with an eight iron and a putter. And sure enough, this guy did get on the first tee with a seven iron, a wedge, and a putter. But his seven iron had a two iron loft and a driver shaft in it, and if he could hit it forever, and he if he beat me three down, uh, so I lost three hundred bucks. I came home, and uh, the guy wanted to carry on playing, but I knew I when I'd been beat, whatever. So I quit. I came home, and my dad was like, "So how much money did you lose?" I said three hundred bucks, and he's like, "I told you you were going to lose," and I never <laughs> forgot that. I was like, well, man, that man was awesome." Well, that, that's how you learn valuable life lessons right there, right? right. You don't mess it with was, a 70-year-old in a three-club no, tournament. No. No, I shot 38, by the way, on the front nine with an eight iron and a putter and got beat three down. It wasn't like I shot 44 or something. No, like I played um, my butt off. I can see that. I played with guys similar to that 
growing up at Brookhaven. Um, yeah. Did the same type yeah. of stuff, you know, but that's what, that's what kind of got you competitive. And that's, that's probably what helped both of us, um, you know, at least make it to the PGA tour. And, uh, as, you, as I, I don't think I mentioned, but you won on the PGA tour, which is an accomplishment. Um, yeah. well, whether people that. think it is or not, that is a different <laughs> level of golf. Even it, even back in the days we're talking about, it is a different level of, of, uh, getting all your getting all your ducks in a row and winning yeah. uh, against well, the best players it. in the world yeah. i enjoyed it you know i played 15 years on the tour and I, I loved every minute of it i i worked my butt off um i didn't play as well over the course of my career as i certainly thought i was going to but uh but i i enjoyed it you know i gave it everything i had and uh you know when i moved on i was i didn't really have any regrets at all i look back on it and it was I, I got to play a sport for a living and be in the most wonderful places in the world and get paid to play the best golf courses that I would probably happily pay to go play. Uh, no. And I really enjoyed it. It's no a doubt. great run. Uh, yeah. it, I, I agree hundred percent. You get to travel the world, you know, travel the country, quote, quote, travel the world, play best golf courses um, <clears throat> and play for money, which you didn't have to put up like you did when you were trying right. to beat a 70 year old with three clubs. <laughs> exactly. And your dad I remember that. Your dad wasn't as pissed at you because he wasn't having to shell out three hundred. Oh no, he was. He was funny. I remember the first time I played with you. I think was at the Legit Amateur, which you won. I remember I I played my butt off in the first round and got paired with you. And I I think you shot sixty four first time I ever played with you. And you were still in high school. And I was like, holy hell, this is a this is an absolute force to be reckoned with. And that was, I think that let's see, eighty four. You won the USAM. Then you're yeah. probably the only person in the history of the game that ever won the Western Am and the Western Open in the same day come year. And that was that incredible run. But you won the legit Am, if I'm not wrong. I'm not, I think, somewhere in there, didn't you? Uh, you know, I did. I, yeah. yeah I, I, I mean, I, I did. I won it three years in a row. So well, I there know, you go. I, knew, I don't know what you're saying, Brandon, but well, I think I'm not I think here was... to pat myself on the back. I'm more here to, to get, get good stuff out of you, man. <laughs> Well, that um, was great. I remember that. <laughs> well, I, I I appreciate it. Those are good memories for me, and 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 they were they were learning learning memories for both of us. Hey, <laughs> they so were. one thing that I do uh, admire about what you do now is you are very well prepared. Um, obviously, you you like to, you must like to read because I know you read a lot. I can just tell by the way you talk and the way you reference things. Um, and obviously you're a golf swing geek, <clears throat> you know, whatever that means, but yeah, you, you, uh, understand the golf swing and you've, you've obviously done a lot of studying to it. So, um, that to me, uh, is what's most impressive because when you speak right, wrong or indifferent, and obviously you generate a lot of, uh, you generate both sides of the aisle pretty good. You know, if you get on social media and look, you have a lot of, uh, followers or a lot of. A lot of people that support you, and then you have a lot of detractors too. And I think such is the nature of <clears throat> social media. But no one could ever accuse you of not being prepared. Um, so, do you just does that just come naturally to you, or do you just take so much pride in your work that that's you know by God I'm gonna I'm gonna know what I'm talking about? I think all that, uh, Scott. <clears throat> I've uh, always loved the history of the game. I've always been probably to my detriment uh, a swing geek. Played the tour, I you know I've taken like <clears throat> top one hundred teachers you could imagine, but read every book on the golf swing you could imagine. 
I just didn't enjoy it. And, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, if you look at the best players of all time, they probably can't tell you how they did it um, because they became very good at what they were doing at a very early age and never really did have to struggle or think their way through it with the exception of, say, maybe Ben Hogan, who I don't think coincidentally wrote one of the most uh, well-read, probably the single so I, I don't know that anybody thought more about the golf swing than Ben Hogan, but he struggled with the game. But most people who the game came easy to at an early age didn't have to think about it. And those that struggled in the game to, to hit the ball like elite golfers in the game thought about it a lot. Uh, that's why most of the teachers were not great players, I think, I would argue. So And because I'm in the business of talking about golf constantly, um, I've made it my business to to do the best I can to understand as much as I can about the golf swing. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I love the history of the game. I love the tradition of the game. And, and yeah, I owe it to our audience to try to tell them at the end of a long day something that's maybe not so obvious and try to put my take on it. I get up every single morning. I treat my job like a job. I get up at right. ungodly hours and I, I work all day long, uh, even when I'm off. I'm still at my computer uh, reading, looking at data, trying to figure something interesting out uh, about the game that piques my interest. Because I, it's, it's then, you know, our audience is not like a typical sports audience. They're not just watching for entertainment. They're watching also to get better. And uh, I try to share that with them. Well, that, that, you know, that makes sense. And you do, uh, like I said, you are uh, well-versed and you definitely do your homework. Um, so, I mean, obviously, like, what what tournament is the best tournament? Obviously, you're getting to cover all these great events now. But is going to yeah. the Masters still, like, the greatest thing as a yeah. broadcaster as it was no as doubt. a player? Yeah, no doubt. I, I, I would say so. Uh, you know, I get that question a, a fair bit. I'd say there are three tournaments that really stand out. The Masters, obviously. Our set is beautiful. It's right on the range there. Right. And And, and what's so great about the Masters, as you well know, is that our audience knows every hole almost as well as we do. And every shot has context to it. When someone's standing over a shot in the second fairway, you know, Louis Ustase and hold one there. Uh, you know, when someone's standing over a second shot on eight, people can remember Seve in 1986, hooking it around the corner and make an eagle or Tom Kite. Everybody, every shot has context. To it. So it's exciting. It's beautiful. Uh, the Open Championship is certainly like that. And then the Ryder right. You know, the Ryder Cup, there's no event like the Ryder Cup in golf. And to cover those three, and, you know, look, I used to say the Phoenix Open, it got, I think the Phoenix Open got a little out of hand for this year. Uh, the Phoenix Open is, is unique uh, and fun in a different way. Um, certainly nothing like the Masters, that's for sure. As far away from the Masters as well as the tournament could get. One is reverent, one's irreverent. Yeah, don't uh, even mention those in the same breath. No, no, you're right, Scott. But the Phoenix um, Open, the Phoenix Open's fun. It may have got a little out of control, but it's been it's been headed that way for about twenty years, from about yeah. the time Tiger made the hole in one in ninety seven. Yes. That's right. Uh, from that point on, they started building stands, and and now it is it's something. But I digress. I'd really rather, you know, I'm lucky enough to uh, do some work at the Masters as well. I only get the oh, I man. cover a couple tournaments for CBS, ESPN, and and Augusta is. Even I, I got to play there 15 times, but I look as forward wow. to going and doing my little uh, three-hole deal with, with Dave Fleming and Jeff Sluman, four, five, and six, um, for the Masters channel. And 
Man, it is the it is the place, and it is Augusta National is just amazing, uh, through and through, top to bottom. It's hard to explain how how great it is, isn't it? It is. You know, I uh, I've never met anybody that went to the Masters that came away and didn't say that it exceeded their expectations. You know, you think about how many things are lauded to the extreme: restaurants, movies concerts that never almost never could live up to the hype and it doesn't matter how much you hype augusta national people (laughs) who leave there always come away and say no no no, i wasn't prepared for that you know it was almost a a religious experience uh and i still get that way when i go there i I do when i walk those grounds i get there every year i walk the grounds and i i'm just like you know this is this is look in a in a you know, what, what St. Andrews has in history can never be topped, but in cinematography perfection, Augusta National can never be top, topped. And that is perfection from a strategic standpoint, from a, uh, a beauty of the golf course standpoint, from a sounds of the game standpoint, from an anticipation of the competition standpoint. It's just everything you could ever ask for. No, there, no, no doubt. It is a... Um... It's a definitely a bucket list for any sports. Even if you don't like golf, it is a bucket list item. Kind of that and the Ryder Cup are the two things in golf yeah. that I would say are are things like going to a Super Bowl or a Kentucky Derby or you know stuff like that. So we are both obviously you have a great setup there. I've been really lucky. <clears throat> you wouldn't believe this the content center. I'm sure you've seen it there that at Augusta, yes. but it, yes. it is about as good as it gets. Um but yeah, I'm yeah. looking forward to that. I know you are as well. All right, so let's get in. I, I really got to ask you, what in the hell's going on with golf now? I know you have a lot of strong <laughs> opinions, um, and I think everybody does. Um, but give me your best take of of what's happened and and where you think professional golf is going. Well, I think the most important shareholder in the game of golf uh, <laughs> is the lifelong fan of the game. And what's happening in the game of golf is that we're risking alienating the lifelong fan of the game, the core golfer. Uh, Those are the people that drive the game of golf. Uh, They tune in to watch the best players in the world. And if uh, they become detached with the best players uh, in the world, they're they're not as likely to tune in. And I think the game has been irreparably damaged and tilted towards greed. Uh, and I don't know if the game will ever be the same, unfortunately. You know, there was always a standing on the shoulders of giants awareness in the game of golf that even professional golfers were just caretakers in the game of golf uh, <clears throat> for a an era or a moment in time. And there was a sense that they had taken the game from those players that came before them who did the best job they could to make it better for them. They passed it on to them, and their job was to be a caretaker of it and pass it on to the next generation, uh, make sure the game was in a better place. That they, they were really there for a moment in time, as you were, as I was, a moment in time. And there's a sense that, you know, that cons- custodial aspect of the game is now gone. And it's more about a, a blind greediness with no respect what came before them and, and no obvious sense of debt to future generations. And I think that's palpable, and I think the audience sees that. And there's a detachment in the in the in the audience uh, with the golfer right now because of it. 
Well, no, I mean, golf is a different sport than any other sport on the planet or any other sport that I've been gotten familiar with. Um, you know, the things that you said, just the way you're supposed to act, the way you're supposed to treat people, the respect for history, um, and, you know, just respect for everything around you. That's kind of a, the gentleman, you know, it's a gentleman's game, basically, is is how it was started. So. I, I agree with you. Uh, the player side of me, if I was a 24, 25-year-old butt kicker, I'd be like, this is the best thing that could ever happen. If, if you play golf, you know, if you play golf professionally to make money, um, the influx of money is great from the player side. But like um, every business, every situation, the more money you get, the more hands there need there wants to be in the pot and the more things get out of context. So, um, you know, I know you're pretty outspoken about the, the PIF and the investment side of it, which I'm not a fan. I mean, I've, I'm a lifelong PGA tour member. I'm not a, a, uh, I'm not a fan of any, anybody that would want to hurt the PGA tour. But I think I feel like the PGA Tour has kind of bungled the thing up. Do you have any kind of thoughts on that? Well, look, I I, I say you know I, I hear that side of the argument, um, but I would say let's you know if you put yourself in the position of a business, let's say, let's say, and this al- analogy has been made, and I think it's a good one. Uh, you're Coca Cola, and you're competing with Pepsi, and Pepsi decides to give their product away for free. You could never anticipate that from a business side. If you're the CEO of Coca-Cola, you could never anticipate the irrational economic decision of somebody deciding to give away their product for free or essentially free or to not care about rational economic um, principles. You can't compete with that uh, in, in 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 a free market. You can't compete with irrational economic decisions. So when people want to criticize, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, but that's that's kind of my, my point to the money's gotten so big that the rules have changed. Um, you know, the the rule, the, the rational economic decision is not what it used to be. If you have an endless, endless supply, then the rules are different. So you have to be you have to have a different approach when you agree. Well, it's, it's hard to compete um, if you're if you're if your responsibility your fiduciary responsibility as head of a company is to make sure that you can pay the bills at the end of the year and your expenses now competing with an irrational economic player doesn't allow for rational economic decisions, then you cannot fulfill your fiduciary responsibility. The game has been irreparably tilted towards greed. So they're competing with the Saudis. And I'll be explicit here because I want people to clearly understand where my dissent with PIF comes from. It comes from a couple of different places, okay? So the person in charge of PIF is one person, okay? That's MBS. That's one person. It's not a committee. It's not a board. It's not a governor, okay? Yasser is an extension of MBS. He does what MBS wants him to do. My dissent with the live is that it is an instrument of MBS's to diversify his economy, which he needs to do. But right. also to sports wash his reputation in Saudi Arabia. And I'll just be explicit. <clears throat> let's just pick one thing. A woman cannot get married in Saudi Arabia unless she has a male guardian. 
And when she gets married, that guardianship is passed on to the woman. And that woman must obey that man under almost every situation where they live, where they travel to, how often they have sex. And if she disobeys or she registers her uh, dissent in any active way, she risks she risks indefinite imprisonment because to get out of prison, even after she served her time, she has to have male guardian permission to get out of prison. Now, there's been sort of tokens along the line thrown to women in Saudi Arabia and in, along the line of human rights. They allow women to drive now. They can listen to music right. occasionally. But this male guardianship law has been codified. It's been codified into law in 2022. So, so, and homosexuals are treated worse. Dissidents are treated worse. So that right. element, that element is MBS. MBS runs PIF. PIF funds live. So that is the element that's been brought to the game of golf. So that's right. where my that's where my dissent is. Beyond that, and I think this was evident when I saw John Rom playing uh, in his first live event, and the music was blaring. Had shorts on, and he was getting pretty pissy about somebody taking a picture of him in the middle of his swing. And it right. just hit me. It just hit me. I thought, you know, this guy went from essentially being having a lead role in The Godfather to now being a sideshow in a vaudeville act. And all of these players, it seems to me, realize that they've all made a Faustian pact. All of them. They've all sold their their independent nature, you know, independent contractors is what they were referred to uh, playing the PGA mm -hmm. Tour. And now then, they, they when they were independent, they could go wherever they wanted, play any tour event they wanted, play at any time they wanted, could skip any event they wanted. And they were free to pretty much say and do anything they wanted. But now they're not. They're not free to do anything except what uh, Yasser, Piff, and MBS demand that they do. And if you remember, John Rahm, after he went, he had one initial comment, and then he said, now then, I can't speak again until the beginning of next year when I'm at Live." Right. So, so he's been silenced. He's been muzzled. And when they do speak, they're all puppets to the regime that they represent. That's where my dissent with Piff comes from. Golf has been this traditional place with a foundation of philanthropy. And now it has a foundation of greed. When I look at what we reserve our highest acclaim for, for athletes, it's not just for accomplishment. It's for those that have taken principled stands. So mm -hmm. that's why we laud Jackie Robinson or Muhammad Ali or Martina Navratilova or Bill Russell or Arthur Ashe or Paul Tillman or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's why we laud them taken principled stances. So there was well, a, so when you think, well, who could bring about change in Saudi Arabia? Well, not if everybody concedes or if everybody uh, is 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 ready to put their hand out. If one if one player said, look, happy to take the money, show me real evidence. And by the way, Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett did write a beautiful column along these lines because uh, you know, there was a yeah, sense I knew, of, were, it, I knew you were prepared, Brandall. You read an article yeah. by Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett. Oh, no, they, they wrote a beautiful article. Both I'm of them sure. Wrote, but it wrote a beautiful article because the, there was a sense of taking uh, a premier tennis tournament, a women's tennis tournament, 
to uh, Saudi Arabia, and both of them protested. And they wrote a they wrote a column, and it's worth reading. It wouldn't be hard to find for any yeah. of your audience. You know, just type in their names and right. Saudi Arabia. And it's a beautiful column where they talk about the responsibilities of one generation to the next uh, as caretakers of the sport. And you know, if you if you are in their instance talking about the equality in women's sports, is it right. not? Uh, uh, is it not um, going against the grain? of everything that they've stood for, for decades upon decades, fighting for equality in women's sports, to acquiesce to the Saudis, to go have an event in Saudi Arabia under the pretense of sport when really it's about sports washing. Uh, it's a beautiful column. And and look, that's why we laud Martina Navratilova. That's why we laud Chris Everett. Uh, athletes are in unique positions to take principal positions. And when people say, well, it's sport, it's not politics, it's like, couldn't be further from the truth. The minute sport gets mixed up in politics and MBS is using sport for mm -hmm. political reasons, it becomes political. No, no doubt. And that was my, uh, I mean, I, listen, you make a great argument like you, like you do every day on television. Um, my biggest problem with how the tour handled is, is they w immediately went political, which I thought was a huge mistake. And that kind of dug the, that kind of dug the hole a little deeper than it probably needed to be. Um, I understand. I'm not as uh, I'm not researching every single day like you are, but I understand the dynamic between Greg Norman, um, Jay Monahan, um, you know, the Piff. The I, I get that. I've been around long enough. I've you know, as you, we grew up in kind of the Greg Norman era, or, or played a lot of golf in that. I mean, he was as good. He was the best player in the world for a long time, but. Besides that, I'm not sure I, you know, is he the guy you want to hitch your wagon to? I don't know. Um, but that's kind of what it's turned into, in my opinion, is kind of a, a Greg versus Jay thing. Um, and that's not, that has not been healthy. Um, well, I, I would say, look, you know, as, as on the flip side of this, if Liv wants to poach players, um, I say, look, let's compete. Let's compete. You know, the PGA Tour is you know, there's all these pipelines to creating stars. Mm -hmm. And and what Liv is trying to do and they is buy a moment in time and pretend that it represents time eternal. You know, they're buying these stars as if these stars uh, level of play is going to remain constant right. ad infinitum. Well, Which we we both know it's not. There's it's impossible. Nobody's ever done that. Of course, I mean, very few players' windows exceed four or five years uh, at the top. But very few players exceed. Right. That. But even if you get four or five years of, let's just say, uh, elite level golf, you're amongst the elite of all time. That's where most players, you know, who ascend to the Hall of Fame, they get it done in four or five years. Uh, but the PGA Tour has a pipeline of college players, Corn Ferry Tour players, players all around the world that feed into the PGA Tour and then and then develop on the PGA Tour and become stars. Max Homa is a is a is a phenomenal example. Max he Homa was 185th, 175th. Max has a huge following in the game of golf and is a I would say marketable star. But when you look at the interest level on the PGA Tour, there's very few players that move the needle. They can have they can have the John Rom. People didn't tune in to watch John Rom play golf. 
They didn't buy tickets to watch John Rahm to play golf. The needle does not get moved by John Rahm. It did not in this country. Not in this country. In this country, it was Tiger Woods, it's Roy McIlroy, it's Phil Mickelson, uh, and Jordan Spieth. Yeah, it hurt when Phil left. And it hurt when Phil, I think, lent his, his, uh, let's just say, his uh, rhetorical chops uh, to to the efforts of Liv. Uh, and it right. did bend the game. So when people want to point the finger at Jay Monahan, I say no. I say the fingers to me it should be pointed at Phil Phil Mickelson and Greg Norman. These are the two that had the ability to stand up and say to the Saudis, "You want to, you want to, you want to come play in the West, okay? You want to, you want to buy the success of the West and pretend you're custodian to that success. Then you need to." You know, let's get out of medieval times. Uh, they right. could have affected. They could have affected change. Show me real evidence of of substantive change within your country. Get rid of your male guardianship law. Okay, get rid of it. Okay, you want us to come to Saudi Arabia to play golf? You really want economic diversity in your country? How about you get out of the mid Middle Ages? Uh, they well, could have. They they have that power. I, I agree with you, uh, but just keeping it to golf. I mean, I, I'm on your side in general on this, but the but they're our fourth largest trading partner. Okay, I mean, I'm not gonna. I don't want to argue about it anymore. Actually, I'm kind of tired of live and the tour fighting about it because, like you said, the fans the only person that's getting screwed in this deal. Everybody wants to have the best players playing against each other, um, and I'm a little bit disappointed with both sides that they can't come together that's just my yeah. take on it well i would say uh, look, you're... To, pe- to people that say look we all want the best players playing together uh look there were years and years where bernard langer Seve ballesteros nick faldo played the european tour and they only came together for the major championships that's it's true. not like we've always had the best players playing together the european tour had the best players in the world at the top for the majority of the world rankings through the 80s and the 90s until Tiger Woods came along. Bernard Langer, Ian Woosnam, Nick yeah. Faldo, Seve Ballesteros, Jose Maria Alathabo, those were the best players in the world. They played in Europe. The PGA Tour yeah. was one entity and there was another tour and the world got along fine. So I don't know why everybody acts like Liv is this unique uh, scenario where they've got four or five of the best players in the world. And that's never happened to the people. Peter Thompson was probably one of the best players in the world. He didn't oh, play yeah. on the PGA tour. Bobby Locke played somewhere else in the rest of the world. He didn't play on the PGA. Yeah, that was, this is you're not unique in the history of the game. No, but the time you're talking about those players, Seve, Bernard, Faldo, they all came over here to play though, ultimately because the money was better here. Um, and I agree with you. I mean, those were the best players in the world at the time. But they did ultimately migrate to the PGA Tour because the tournaments full were full time. Yeah, not full time. Well, but, no. I mean, but but that's when all the things. That's when all the controversy back in our day of how many tournaments you got to play to be a member came about. You know, so they're trying to they're trying to negotiate back and forth. You know, does this tournament? It's like now it's kind of stupid. You know, a a major counts on three different tours as a tournament played as as your home tour, which just trying to you know trying to work the rules around to get it, you know, to make it all, to make it yeah. work. What's best for each tour, what's best for the media, television, and what's best for the money. I mean, that's ultimately what it's about. But all right, listen, I, I 
I think you and I could talk for hours about live. We could really talk for hours about anything, but I got to ask you a couple other things before I don't want to keep you all day unless you have all day. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's good to so, catch up with you. Listen, I know it, it is great. Um, and I love you because you're opin- opinionated. Like I said, I think we could differ on things, but I know you're well-versed. So I, I, I respect that a ton. But what do you think has happened with, with the equipment? You know, the ball roll back, the way the equipment has changed it. Because that's changed the game as much as anything. Probably as much as the money has changed the game, the equipment. I'm in favor of... I hate to say it, but I'm in favor of bifurcation of rules where the PGA Tour has our own equipment standards. I just think the game is – the players are so good now. The athletes that used Tiger Woods brought in a whole different level of athlete. You know, no offense to guys from our era or even before, but, man, there's not very many guys coming out now that aren't six foot two, 185, you know, can run the 4740. And we're the starting free safety in high school, right? I mean, those guys are playing golf now. So that with the equipment, I think that's been as big a change and in some ways not great for the history and the legacy of the game. Yeah. How tall are you, by the way? What are you, 5'9", 5'10"? 5'9". 5'9". So my wife Bailey and I were at the TaylorMade event at uh, Pebble Beach, and I was talking to – How tall are you? 5'9". And uh, okay, okay. and I was talking to Billy Andrade. I think Willie Wood was somewhere around there. Jeff Sluman. Anyway, uh, little I guys. Was, I was telling my <laughs> wife when I left. I said, "That's what tour players used to look like. They were they were five no, foot nine. Randall, uh, Randall, uh, you yeah. only liked them because they were all shorter than you, dude. <laughs> well, Sluman, you, but Sluman you thought good. that you know you thought well, well Willie's not as tall as you or me and well, I don't actually, know if Billy right. really is. I was so but you, you just like that because you were bigger you were a brute compared to them. I was I, I could look them eye to eye uh, there you go Mark Brooks uh, yep. Tracy Phillips these these guys these oh, are yeah. what tour players look like yeah uh, and, and now they're all six foot two one hundred eighty five uh, and they all look like Michael Phelps uh, and so. With that has come faster club head speeds, uh, more athleticism to the game, uh, you know, and I think it's been great for the game. I think it is great for the game. They, they, you, you tune in now and you get a sense that you really are watching athletes. Uh, the argument about equipment, I look, I've come full circle on it. And initially I was for uh, a rollback. I dove in and started looking at has the game materially changed. Because of the equipment, and I, I came 180 degrees. I didn't think that the rollback of the golf ball or the equipment was necessary. Uh, and then with the anchored band, I thought, well, this is a perfect time for bifurcation in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, if they decided to bifurcate the game, it wouldn't. They they were going to roll the ball back. It doesn't. Matter. I don't think the golf ball needs to roll be rolled back. If they wanted to make the head smaller. Uh, you know, the game, because look, because the head is so forgiving, what do you see now? You see guys who have stronger grips. They swing much harder. Uh, they, they stay behind it. They rotate and extend. And at the expense of accuracy, they're willing to risk uh, to pick up yardage. I think a more organic change could come about in the game just by changing the way golf courses are set up. But the era of architecture that we're in right now and the philosophy of design and the philosophy of setup is at polar 
opposite ends to what the game needs. Uh, golf course architecture has swung into this 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 mania of every course has to look like a Lynx golf course. Right. The, the deforestation's gone run amok. Cut all the trees down. Yeah. Eighty yard wide fairways at so we can have all these angles, et cetera, et cetera. Well, all that does is encourage players to swing harder. No, no doubt. I mean, that. listen, what you're saying right there was like what they did with three or four holes at Riviera, which Riviera is one of the greatest golf courses ever designed, in my opinion. I mean, Agreed. I think if, if you're a golf course architect, you should have to go walk Riviera yeah. and look at the green, the way the greens are set, the way the bunkers are built. But then there, they went in there and they did that, what you said, on, you know, maybe the, the 12th hole, the 13th hole, the 15th hole. Man, they just fundamentally changed the holes. They made the fairways twice as wide, uh, backed it way up. But but distance is not a factor to these guys anymore. Um, I guess my point is I'm not I, – I think they're fantastic. I think there's more good players now than there's ever been. But – the things that made golf all, we were talking about all this stuff with the, with the the piff and the and the history and the money and all this well the thing that makes golf great is it's different and the things that have made golf great for 200 years are not near as important as they used to be in my opinion it used to be about ball control uh oh yeah you know playing 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 to your strengths playing smart playing with strategy I mean, strategy's out the window when you, all you do is tee it as high as you can and hit it as far as you can. And if I could do that, that's what I would do. And if I had a kid, learn how to swing as fast as you can, and then we'll worry about where it's going because we can fix where it's going. Yeah. And so, look, the, the you know the RNA and the USGA has decided to roll the golf ball back to some extent. You know, and, and we can debate how far that's going to be. But if it, if that if that rollback does indeed lead to more compelling golf and a need to work the ball more and bring more artistry back into the game. I, I still think there's an amazing amount of artistry in the game. I see it all the time, examples of it. Right. And I could go on, on and on and on and on, giving you examples of it. Uh, but if it does indeed make the game more compelling, I'll go, what? Well, you were right. I was wrong. Game's more compelling now. It, it brings uh, more variety of players into the game, which I don't know how. I mean, there is ample room for short hitters. Uh, to make a living in this game, an ample, ample room, and there's loads there, of short hitters out there making a uh, great living in this game. But to, the idea that short hitters have ever had a leg up in this game, or ever been able to prevail in this game, if you go down that list of uh, Barden Trophy winners, which I believe goes back to 1942, yeah, all the way back, and you start to look at Barden Trophy winners, okay, with the exception of Lee Trevino. And Lee, even if Lee were sitting here right now, he would say he won a majority of those Barden trophies only because Jack Nicholas didn't play enough didn't play rounds. Enough. Didn't play enough <laughs> rounds to qualify for the Barden trophy. Jack would have won nine Barden trophies, nine in his career, and he won none. But he would have won nine if they wouldn't have had such ridiculously archaic rules about what it took to qualify. But nonetheless, right. Lee Trevino did win the Varden Trophy. There are very few short hitters that dominated in the Varden Trophy. You're talking about players and the greats of this game. For that, when you start that rarefied era of the greats of the game, those are long and straight hitters. Yeah. Length has always been an asset. 
And oh, it will no doubt. always be. And, the, and I look at the game now and I'm like, well, well, who dominates the game golf now? It's not just long hitters. If you go down and look at the top 10 long hitters in the, in the game of golf last year, their average world rank was something like 150th. Right. The ones who dominate in this game don't just hit it long. They hit it long and straight. And they've got precision and they've got great touch and they've got great mechanics and they, they manage their games well. Well, that's no different than who won in the 60s and the 70s right. and the 80s. The game has not materially changed. Uh, it's just that, you know, people who look at golf courses as, as works of art not to be touched. See, Augusta National is, I think, done this right. As technology improvements have come along, they've kept in step with those technological improvements. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the difficulty of Augusta National and compare it to 40 years ago, it is almost to the hundredth of a stroke uh, the same golf course that it was 40 years ago, in spite of the fact that golfers are 40 yards longer. Um, so, you know, and, and, and Alistair McKenzie, eons ago, uh, in, uh, in a book, trying to remember the title of his book, but he, he wrote that a golf course needs to be elastic. So, you know, there's this argument that how, you know, how long do golf courses need to be? Um, there are very few golf courses in the overall scheme of things that host PGA Tour events. But if they set golf courses up with the right width of fairways, the right thickness of rough uh, that are at the right length, these changes that need to come to the game of golf, to whatever degree they need to come, would come about organically. Yeah, no, and and I I agree. I mean, I think that um, you know the driving the ball long and straight now is. I mean, a straight driver now is a guy who hits sixty percent of the fairways. That's right. I mean, and back in uh, <clears throat> I don't know Jack Nicklaus heyday or. Uh, you know, just the Trevinos. I mean, those got they were they way more accurate than they, that. Well, well, I'll give you this though. It, it, it's I think it's a, a misunderstanding of the, the ben, word. Ben Hogan accurate. hit it long. Ben Hogan it, hit it long for his day, but he, he hit it that that. But he was he hit it straight. The guys now, did. I would not say hit it straight. Well, the the way to judge straightness, at least <laughs> in my view, is not by fairways hit. It's it's degrees off a of center line. So. You know, a three-degree uh, dispersion at 270 yards obviously is going to be smaller than a three-degree dispersion at 350 yards. So if you've got a three-degree dispersion at 350 yards versus a three-degree dispersion at 270 yards, you are a much, much, much better driver than the guy who drives at 270 with a three-degree oh, yeah. dispersion. Okay, a much, much, much better driver. So in my view, you can't have fairways – that are the width that they were in the 80s. So the USGA, I, I would respectfully disagree with their setups. Um, yeah. so, so look, if you try, and they did this at Wingfoot, if you try to set a golf course up with fairway widths that were appropriate in the 80s, okay, and rough that was appropriate in the 80s, then what you get is players that are even short hitters by today's standards can't hit enough fairways to compete with the longer hitters. You have to take into account the average distance now and the dispersion, and you widen the fairways according to that dispersion. And then you take into account the amount of club head speed, the angle of attack, and the club they're coming into it. And so the rough can't be 
three inches, it needs to be five and a half inches. So you have to appropriately penalize a missed fairway such that there's reward for finding the fairway. So now players will gravitate more towards a spinnier golf ball and a club with less OMI, MOI, and more right. players and shorter hitters can compete with longer hitters. So the thing about Bryson DeChambeau winning at Wingfoot and everybody going, wow, he never hit any fairways. If you go look at who drove it the longest and straightest on a dispersion off the center line by degrees, he drove it longer and straighter than anybody in that. He was the longest, straightest hitter that week. Right. But he only hit 42% of his fairway. Right. So if the fairways had been not 28 yards wide, but 32 yards wide, and the rough had been not three and a half inches, but five and a half inches, so that the penalty for missing a fairway is not 0.3 strokes, but 0.5 or 0.6 or 0.7 strokes, then shorter hitters can compete with longer hitters in the U.S. Open. So it becomes a matter of math to me and dispersion angles. But that's where we're at in the game of golf. Yeah. All of that stuff is available to you. You can find it and you can use it to set up and bring about the change you want in a more organic manner. Well, no, I, there's no doubt. You can find the, like you said, go by the math and you can do it. But I, I'm just talking about the artistry. I mean, from what, from, we grew up with not the equipment, not the, you know, everybody has a track man. Everybody has, you know, a strength coach, a putting coach, a psychologist, a swing coach. Um, and they're all, they're all kind of, you know, want to be scientists if they're not scientists. Um, and I don't know if that that is, healthy for the artistry in the long term i'd agree with you the long term yeah. game of because the game is about the game is about competing against yourself at the highest level yeah. and a, a lot of that and a lot of that is emotional um and internalized and man that's where to me the game's getting away i agree that's where we're not it's not getting away we're losing what has made golf great for 200 years and it's not going away overnight, but all the things that are happening today, in my opinion, are kind of, they're kind of lessening and, and it's, it's all involved. It's the money, um, it's the equipment, it's the golf course setup. They're all kind of lessening the things that make golf the greatest sport. And I hate that golf would turn into another, I love all the other professional sports, but the attitudes and the behaviors are not what golf is. And I'm concerned about that. That's why, like you said, Augusta National is the greatest. They're in line, but they but they're Augusta National. They can they have the the means and they have the the money and they have the wherewithal to stay ahead of the equipment. No, not really any other place does. Um, so that to me that's a problem. I mean, I and I uh, like I said, I haven't studied it. I don't study golf like you do every single day. That's why I enjoy talking with you because <laughs> I know you're going to be educated about it. But there's well, got to be a happy medium in there yeah. somewhere. Who are the artists that you, like when, you know, I mean, you and I are the same era, so I think we'll have, yeah. you know, some redundancy here. But, like, who did you really think was an artist when you played golf with them uh, well, on tour? obviously, obviously Savvy. Um, <laughs> you know, Trevino is a little older than me, but I did play a lot of golf with him um, as a younger guy. Obviously, just the guys that, you know, those guys are were characters too, like you said. I mean, I, I'm with you. Every to me, almost every great player does not have a cookie cutter swing. They have their own swing. They may add some things to it that make it look better, but it's their own swing. And those kind of things have gone. The individualism of, of you know, 
the artistry. I mean, it's kind of like what t- in 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 my real era of playing good golf, the two best players were Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Well, they just happened to be the two best artists too. They were they were by far the best chippers in that in that era of their time. They were by everybody thought, oh, Tiger hit it great. You know, Phil could hit all these, you know, really long and all that. But they were the best. They were the two best chippers by far. So they so they knew how to play the game from the artist standpoint. And I think that's I always loved the way Tiger Woods hit the ball. But that's not what impressed me about him. What impressed me about him was his ability to get the ball in the hole like other people weren't aware of and and hadn't even considered. So, I just kind of, I, I, I just, this, I, it, it, I, I'm not disappointed. It just, it's just, I don't want to lose the things that make golf great where anybody can go out there and feel like they have a chance because they have the skill sets that have made the game great for 200 years. So well, you're talking about the individuality in the game. And when I, when I look at the landscape of game and I hear all these players reference their team and I get it, golf is, is lonely. You're out on the tour. It's nice to have people around you to support team. Everybody, you know, has to sort of justify their existence. So you have people out there that are coaching them from a strategic standpoint, from a technical standpoint, from a putting standpoint, from a mechanical standpoint, from a nutrition standpoint. And so there is, at least in my view, there is a sense of everybody getting coached to the middle. Uh, You know, from a strategic standpoint, what do you pay for? You pay for people that are willing to take a risk to win a golf tournament. So wins used to open every single door on tour. That's no longer the case. It's not just wins that open every single door on tour. It is, it is FedEx cup points. It is world ranking points. So when you watch, uh, Nick Taylor won the WM Phoenix open, right? Right. So he gets to 15 on Sunday and he's got 250. I think it's 251 to the hole, only 230 to carry that, that water right uh, right there in front. So he's got 230. So, and he was at the time, I think two back. He might've been one back, but I think he was two back and he laid up. Right. Now he did hit a wedge close and make birdie. Okay. And he went on to play some incredibly clutch golf and he won. Right. Right. But that to me was an example of somebody who <clears throat> had been coached to a, you know, to me, I, you know, I would have thought the strategy and the coaching would have been to go for it because in that particular instance, there's enough fairway short and enough leeway left and right that it was worth the risk. And he could have easily right. covered the distance the day before he had 259 and he knocked it up just in front of the green. This was a shorter shot, but he laid it up and hit right. wedge. Now, I understand that strategically. And the fact that he went on to win perhaps validates that decision. But that's not exactly what people pay to see. They pay to see Seve take the chance. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes, if we can make this analogous to a blackjack game, people want to see somebody hit on 17. They want to see somebody take a chance or take a risk. Okay. Uh, I love no, blackjack, Randall, but it's really hard to hit on 17. <laughs> okay. Hit on 16. Uh, <laughs> but you Always like to, hit on 16, Brandel. You, 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 you like to see somebody chips in occasionally uh and if everybody's yeah. being coached you know they're all taught they're all being taught to have one shot shake that's there true are statisticians oh. out there to say look whatever your shot shape is don't ever try to hit a draw if you hit a fade don't ever try to hit a fade if you hit a draw 
that that may make strategic sense, but Tiger didn't play that way. Phil didn't no. play that way. Nicholas didn't play that way. Hogan didn't play that way. That doesn't that doesn't represent the height that this game can be. I yeah, look well, at it, and I think the coaching is great, and it's inevitable. <clears throat> so it does some damage, I think, to the interest level of the game. Well, I, I do too. Um, Randall, we've been on here a long time. I really would like you to come back sometime because I think we could talk forever. Um, but I don't want to take up your whole day. My dog's getting mm. antsy over here. What she kind of really dog wants you got me. there? Uh, I have a Boykin Spaniel, and she is, that is almost 13 years old. Cute. She's been my she's been my hunting partner for uh, for 13 years. Um, loves to quail hunt, duck hunt. Um, you do any kind of, what do you do besides study golf and, and talk on television? Do you have any other hobbies? Uh, gosh, you know, no, not really. I, I read a lot. Uh, my wife and I travel a fair bit. Um, you know, uh, no, I mean, honestly, reading is my hobby to be honest with you. Um, I, you know, I play tennis, I hike, I bike, um, you know, those kinds of things. I play other sports. I go to the gym and those kind of things, but but if you're asking you're, me, my, you're my perfect day, my perfect day yep. is to yep. wake up, have a cup of coffee, uh, and uh, and read. Uh, just I, like I, I, just like when you were a player, if you're not consumed <laughs> by, you know, when you if you play the PGA Tour, if you don't eat, drink, sleep, you know, exactly. everything golf, then exactly. you're going to fall behind. So exactly. good. I, I, exactly. I, I, but I appreciate Brandon. I appreciate that about you because I know that you're fully committed um, to what well, you're thanks. doing. Thanks, Scott. and you're great at it. I, um, I I appreciate it. It was nice to catch up with you. I've uh, obviously uh, you know been a big fan of yours and admired your game and the way you've handled yourself. And life throws you curveballs. The way you've dealt with uh, uh, you know I, I don't even know if you call it a disability anymore, but living a whole life with diabetes couldn't have been easy. But you've always handled it with a plum. So uh, I've always had a great respect for you and uh, and your family and the way you handle yourself, Scott. Well, I appreciate that, Brandel. Um, but yeah, listen, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Like I said, I think you're an important voice um, and you are well-versed, probably probably to the detriment uh, to yourself from some people because you almost sound too freaking smart. So um, you got to get back Justin, to your Irving route. Justin, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm made aware every day of, 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 of my inadequacies. I know. <laughs> I know. All I got to do is, all you got to do is look at your social media deal and you hey, you got the love hate relationship, you know, and the haters are always going to hate. So I, you just have to deal with it. I remember the first year I got into TV, I was talking to Mike Tirico, who is just, you know, um, he's the best. Is the best. I mean, he's just one of the most uh, generous people you ever work with. Who's also a genius at what he does. Uh, I remember he he said to me, uh, "Look, if you do your job right as an analyst, half the people are going to love you, and half of them are going to hate you." He goes, "And you just have to get comfortable with that." Uh, and, well, and, and, and I'm not sure. Words have never been said. You know, I always I just I try to find the truth and say what I believe. And, you know, that, if that upsets seven people, I'm, I'm okay with that. Well, uh, that, that is how you uh, have built. You've built a unique spot in golf. You know, there was not, you created a position that was not there and was not available. Um, so kudos to you for that. And, hey, keep going. And well, hopefully thanks. I'll get you uh, to come back on sometime. I know we could talk for hours. Happy to do it. Reminiscing. Happy to um, do it. But anyway. 
look forward to seeing you down the road. Uh, right. Hopefully, I will see you at the Masters. Look forward to it, Scott. Take care. Thanks Thank for having me so on. so much, Randall. Cheers. All right. Cheers. That wraps another episode of the Scott Burplank Show. Follow and subscribe to this channel and visit selloutcrowd.com for upcoming episodes. <laughs>